Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Everybody, welcome to another episode of Audio Judo. I'm Kyle, and I'm Matthew. Welcome, Matthew. Are you afraid of sunlight? Big time, big time. Yeah, like a vampire. Yeah, all right. Yeah, I am uh, terrified of it. Actually, oh, good. Well, I'm glad. Uh, but that's uh, that's what we're talking about today, isn't it? That is true. Uh, w- welcome, as he said. Oh yeah, proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network, the premier music podcast network. If you haven't had a chance yet, uh, check out our spinoff podcast, Audio Judo Does Jazz, which is now at our website, audiojudo.com, or you can find it on any of your favorite podcast providers. Uh, We are currently a few episodes in on that journey, and it's going to be a wild ride. Yeah. Lots of information, challenging ideas, some awesome music recommendations to get you started on your jazz adventure. Uh, That show is being hosted by our friend Chris, who is also a show consultant on this program, and we are producing it. Uh, But we are also recording that series exclusively on the AKG Podcasters Kit. So if you're looking to get into podcasting yourself, check it out at akg.com or Amazon. Pick one up. Get started right now. Yeah, they're pretty cool uh, little kits, too. We got to play with it before we sent it away to Chris. And uh, like I said a couple episodes ago, I almost stole it. Yeah, you well, makes sense. <laughs> if we wouldn't have needed it, it would have been be gone. It would be gone. Uh, so the last several, several episodes, we've focused on a few of the most popular and critically acclaimed records of all time mm-hmm. and this week we will not be no this is a uh, kind of the the opposite <laughs> uh incredibly talented incredibly uh, uh uh musical musicians that sounds like really good english musical They're musicians, musical musicians as uh, opposed but, to <laughs> uh, uh, critically whatever the opposite of acclaimed is yes uh critically shunned yeah we're ta- talking about an album that is near and dear to my heart an album that didn't sell well Flew under the radar of most critics, and that album is the 1995 album Afraid of Sunlight by Marillion. First of all, I want to welcome all the Marillion fans out there joining us on this episode that may not have listened to us before. Right. Because I know that uh, I know what you are like because I am one of you. So I know that when we publish this episode and promote it, you will see it and you will listen because you are like me. And we try and digest any bit of information about this band, any nugget that helps us understand or appreciate this band a little bit more than we already do. The fan base for this band is loyal and devoted, and more than anything, as we will talk about, generous. Yes. Uh, I should say that I have been a fan of Marillion since 1986 and probably have a lot to say about them. So this may run a little long, but guaranteed it'll be jammed full of information. Good. And as any diehard Marillion fan knows, all the best freaks are here. <laughs> I have a feeling that uh, this episode might be one of our most um, feedbacked episodes. Oh, yeah. Because everybody's going to be saying, way to go, Matthew. Kyle, you were wrong. <laughs> Good uh, job. 
Oh, you call yourself a Marillion fan, Matthew? Why did you say that about fish like that? <laughs> oh, well, here we go. You said it was July 1984. It was actually August 1984. Uh, That's com- probably mistake. Technically, it was uh, 12.07 a.m. on August 1st. So uh, I got that wrong. Me culpa, you know? That's fair. So, but, Mar- uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I was saying, while, uh, while we've got the, uh, the hook in there, let's set yeah. it. Uh, we have a previous episode uh, that deals uh, uh, with Marillion, sort of. Uh, we interviewed Fish. Yes. Uh, that is episode 22 in our back catalog, if you want to go back and take a quick listen to that. Yeah, the big man uh, himself. Yeah, yeah, that was a fun episode. Really good interview, too. Marillion was formed in England in 1979, originally called Silmarillion. The only original member of that group that would eventually form Marillion was the guitarist Steve Rothery, who is still in the band. Uh, around 1980... They jettisoned the SIL, the S-I-L, from the beginning part of their name for ease of saying and to avoid any lawsuits from the Tolkien estate, as the Silmarillion is a Middle-Earth book and to this day remains one of the most impregnable reads of my life. Oh, God, yeah, it is. It is 800 pages of names and family trees and histories, and the only way to effectively read that book is to sit down with a pad of paper and map the whole damn thing out. Yeah. And I don't know, that's like a textbook. That's like work. I wish I could remember the name off the top of my head, but there is a, a side-along reader for Ugh. the Cimmerillion that uh, explains what's actually going on. <laughs> you need it. You need to be reading two books at once to yeah. understand what's going on in that book. Yeah. And we'll put a link to uh, a, a show note in the, yeah. to the Cimmerillion. Yeah. You can check out that if you're, if you're curious. I think that we also need to mention the uh, Silly Marillion, <laughs> which is a, a, a hilarious parody book. Very important, uh, very important to bring that up, but please continue. Uh, anyway, the band didn't have much success uh, at the beginning, but in 1981, a giant singer with a giant voice and a giant pen joined the band. That singer was Derek W. Dick, also known as Fish. Changed the scope and tenor of their lyrics, the band began to find some modest success as a local touring band until about 1983, when their first record came out. That record, script for a jester's tear, would start a whirl, whirlwind four to five years of European success and a mild opening of doors in the United States as the premier neo-progressive rock band of the moment. So I'd like to stop for a second and address the term progressive rock in musical terms, as I think it's one that gets used as a label for things when sometimes it shouldn't. So the definition of the term progressive rock, as I have seen bandied about, is this. The style was an outgrowth of psychedelic bands who abandoned standard pop traditions in favor of instrumentation and compositional techniques more frequently associated with jazz, folk, or classical music. Additional elements contributed to its progressive label. Lyrics were more poetic. Technology was harnessed for new sounds. Music approached the condition of art. And the studio, rather than the stage, became the focus of musical activity, which often involved creating music for listening rather than dancing. And I think that's an okay definition. However, what it allows to happen is that any band with a sound that doesn't fit in with, quote, general pop sounds, it allows it to be considered progressive and it becomes the catch-all for anything different. Any band that uses a flute, for instance, or changes time signatures, or lyrics that don't necessarily speak to love and maybe more of the human condition, or things happening to a person other than love, that gets lumped into the progressive bin and music fans may not hear because that word seems off-putting. You hear progressive, and the giants come to mind for occasional music fans. Progressive means yes, or Floyd, 
or Genesis at one time, or Rush even, and then you stop for a second and realize how different each of those bands is from one another, you get a sense of how that label progressive rock can be used to marginalize a lot of the other bands. My personal feelings are that progressive means something else entirely. The word progressive is more rooted in the word progress than anything else. It states a movement forward for the band, that every album they make is a move towards something new and exciting for the band and subsequently for the listener. Fans of ACDC know that when they release a new album, it's going to sound like ACDC, and they love it. They know what they're getting. It is not going to be different from their last 15 albums, and that's great for them because that's what they expect. But on the flip side of that, fans of Rush know that the next album would have been completely different than the last one. They would explore new sounds, new ideas. Sometimes they hit the mark, sometimes they miss. But what we loved as fans is that it was definitely going to be different, and it was definitely going to sound like Rush anyway. But it's progress. Marillion was the leader of the new wave of progressive bands to come out of the 80s and lead the sound through that decade. I just felt like I had to get that out of my system. So, Could you please take this seriously, Matthew? I'm sorry. I just uh, I, it, uh, I don't even feel like you're passionate about this at all. I have strong opinions about I this. I just feel like you're just phoning it in. Am I just mailing it in? Yeah. All right. Uh, so... Well, you take it from here. I mean, no, oh, well, no. <laughs> crap. I don't, I don't have any notes. I just assumed you were going to do this whole episode. All right. Obviously, uh, like Matthew said, they've been around since the uh, early 80s. Since 1982, they've released 19 albums. Uh-huh. Uh, and generally, I, I call these eras. Maybe there's a, a more official name for it, but they kind of split into two eras. There's the Fish era, which was 1982 to 1988, roughly, uh, and the Steve Hogarth era, which was 1989 to present. Correct. Well, the first two, first two Marillion albums... Script for a Gesture's Tear and 1984's Fugazi mm-hmm. uh, were fairly successful records, both reaching the top five in the UK, breathing new life into the progressive genre. But they would reach stardom in Europe and less so in the States with the 1985 uh, record Misplaced Childhood, uh, which is one of my top five records of all time, regardless of band. Uh, it is one of the most important albums of my life. I listen to it once a month without fail. I actually listened to wow. it today on my run. I first heard of the band when they opened for Rush, on the 1986 Power Windows Tour. They played Misplaced Childhood, beginning to end, as a warm-up band. They played a conceptual piece as a warm-up band, and it blew me away. Hmm. Musicianship was incredible. The lyrics were emotive and strange and told great stories. Couple that with this giant on stage in makeup and kimono, and it was so weird and beautiful, and this album became a lifeline of sorts for me, and it's never left my side. Uh, That album would go to number one in the UK, you know what was number two that week? Hmm. Sting's Dream of the Blue Turtles. Ooh. So they had an audience. Yeah. Uh, it would also produce their only charting single in the States, Kaylee, reaching number 74 on the Billboard 100. Yeah. So they had uh, 11 top 40 hits in the UK uh, during the Fish era. Mm-hmm. During the Steve Hogarth era, they had additional four top 40 hits in the UK singles chart. Yeah. Which is pretty good. I mean, that's for, for a band that's been around that long, 15 top 40 hits. That's pretty good numbers. So in 1987, they released the album Clutching at Straws. This album would not chart as well, but still do very well for them. But it would also be the last studio record released with Fish as the singer. He was burned out from the road as his chemical use was at an all-time high. And that is significant because he is a large man. The album itself is lyrically about a descent into alcoholism and addiction and its effect not only on the physical, but on the emotional and psychological as well. He left the band shortly after the tour ended. Enter H, or Steve Hogarth. He would replace Fish as the lead singer for the next album, Season's End, released in 1989. 
songs that would retain the sounds they were making with Fish and lack the personality of what Hogarth would eventually bring. A lot of the demos for, the, for those songs were recorded when Fish was still there. And when he left, he took his lyrics with him. Makes sense. So the songs have new lyrics by Hogarth and his writing partner, John Helmer, and have this very strange character. He doesn't quite feel like he's in the band yet. So the band was now constructed as it remains today. And since I haven't done that yet, uh, I should probably mention them here. Yeah. Uh, Steve Hogarth was now the singer. Pete Trowavis plays the bass and has also been uh, in the band since right before the first album. He is also a member of the supergroup Transatlantic with Mike Portnoy. On keys is Mark Kelly, also joining before the first release. His solo project, Mark Kelly's Marathon, uh, just released a record in November 2020. And the drummer is Ian Mosley, who joined after the first album was released. And the guitarist, Steve Rothery, one of the finest rock guitarists of all time. So after H joined, and the lack of success they were having now with the onset of grunge and the changing musical landscape, the label wanted more pop hits. The resulting album, Holidays in Eden, while steering away from the progressive sounds of the 80s, perhaps course-corrected too much, ended up sounding very strange and being the most polarizing album of their careers. Uh, it's super polished and thin, and it just doesn't sound like them at all. Even their logo changed. And I've always wondered when Fish left that they should have possibly renamed themselves something else. Mm. They needed a fresh start, and they were trying to shake that progressive dinosaur label while trying to make something new and interesting. They should have started going by Sill. Ooh, just, just pick that back flip up. Flip it around. Just, just pick uh, it back up. Ditch the Marillion, go by Sill. I like that idea. And S Sill with an H at the end for Steve Hogarth. S Sill. So <laughs> That's so stupid. I'm sorry, everybody. Please continue, Matthew. Fa fans began to faction off at this point. Old Marillion, new Marillion. Groups that unfortunately still exist to this day. That's a shame. The next album would almost crush the band entirely. The next was 1994's Brave, and it would take almost 15 months to record. Double LP spanning 71 minutes. Uh, it also had an independent movie made alongside with it. Wow. It has been called one of the 30 best concept records of all time. The label had wanted them to make a quick record to generate revenue, but this project continued to escalate and grow out of proportion to the aforementioned 15 months. But the fans didn't seem to mind. This album would reach number 10 on the UK charts, but would be their last album to chart that high for 22 years. Wow. It's a long time. Yeah, it is. Uh, but they were beginning to reach the end of their shelf life for the label, and things were getting strained. Enter, finally, this album, Afraid of Sunlight. Released on June 24th, 1995, it would perform moderately well in the charts, peaking at number 16 on the UK charts, but it would be the last album they would ever record for EMI. For me, however, this is when the new Marillion with Steve Ho Ho Hogarth became Marillion again. This would be when they began to refine the new sound they had been cultivating over the past few records and would all start to come together sonically. It was clear they probably were never going to sell records like they had, and they began to invent new ways to get their music heard, to foster relationships with the fans, and to continue make music for a living. Yeah, well, as far as sales go, that definitely showed up with this. It was the, uh, it was the first Marillion studio album not to reach uh, top 10 in the UK, Peaked at number 16 and then fell below 75 within two weeks. It did reach number eight. That's a Nummer 8 in, on the Dutch charts. Mm -hmm. which, uh, apparently, they have a lot of fans in the, in the Netherlands, which is cool. Yes, they do. Uh, but it is considered uh, to be one of Merlion's best works. 
by a lot of people. And obviously that's a uh, probably a controversial statement to a lot of the people listening right now. Probably. Who for sure have their own favorites, but uh always. Uh, it's uh it was awarded Q Magazine's Record of the Year for 1985 and it's uh, I got to be honest with you. This is really the first Marillion album I've sat down to listen to beginning to end. Right, that's okay. Yeah, I liked it. I liked it a lot. Uh, I like that it has it's I don't know if I would quite call it a concept album, but it does have an overarching theme of uh, oh, yeah. the destruction, the destructive side of like fame and celebrity. I thought that was cool and because it's very subtly done throughout the whole thing. You want to talk about the album art? Yeah. There's two of them. There's two different two. covers yeah. for this because there was a 19, or, sorry, a 2019 re-release of this album that was uh, remastered uh, and has a different cover. The original cover, though, uh, it's a child dressed as an angel uh, with big dirty wings He's covered in dirt all over the place, and he's surrounded by this huge ring of fire. Correct. Right? It's very bizarre. It's a very interesting cover. It's weird. It's eye-catching. Uh, all the best covers are eye-catching. Right? It, it's definitely something that hooks you in really quick. Yeah. It's provocative and striking. Uh, the back cover, mm-hmm. which is alternately the front cover for the reissue, yes. is neon-treated photo of the Christ Re- Redeemer statue in Rio. Mm-hmm. So it's fairly clear there are some religious metaphors going yeah. on here, whether overt or not. Yeah. And then the re-release, like you said, is that picture from the back on the front. Did you have who did it? I, oh, I'm sorry. I do not have it written uh, down. The so cover design, cover design, the picture was taken by Paul Cox, the photos. The cover design was done by uh, Bill Smith, who's legendary. He's probably done 400 album covers, including... Genesis, uh, Abacab record, Ooh, yeah. several of the Cure's early releases, and Michael Oldfield's Tubular Bells, which was used for the Exorcist theme oh, song, yeah. uh, just to name a few. Paul Cox took the picture, like I said, he's taken photos for Duran Duran, Human League, like a whole bunch of people. It's a vivid design. Yeah. the, uh, the in, There's a, a note on the back of the re-release as well. It has the line, uh, special thanks to John Helmer for his words, thoughts, and inspiration. Uh, this album was knocked out and remastered to bits. Mm-hmm. So that was a pretty good line. But uh, speaking, that's from the reissue. That is from the reissue because yes. the original one just says this album was knocked out, right? Because because the rave took fifteen months. This one only took a few. That makes sense. They pretty much knocked it out. Like, okay, here you go. So, uh, can we take a second before we get into this to talk about John Helmer? Yeah, who was a, a co-writer of a lot of these songs. Sure. So, uh, John Helmer is a musician and author. Uh, his only book currently is called Mother Tongue, and apparently it is uh, not well regarded by a lot of people, uh-huh. but uh, I did not read the book, but uh, the reviews of it made it sound very interesting and a little awkward to read because of some of the go on unusual sex and rape scenes that take place in it. Oh, <laughs> so that sounds interesting. But uh, hmm. uh, obviously, after Fish departed the band, EMI put the band in touch with Helmer to help with songwriting. And then obviously the band also found Steve Hogarth around the same time, and they sort of started to work together. Helmer has collaborated on lyrics for Merlion for over a decade now. Um, for Well, basically since then. Uh, he's yeah, worked on and off on several, now, yeah. Yeah, on several albums. Um, he also wrote most of the lyrics on uh, uh, Carnival of Souls, a 1996 album by uh, Steve Rothery's side project, The, the Wishing, Wishing Tree. Tree. So buckle in for this part, because I'm going to take you on a, a little bit of a journey here that I, I fell down a rabbit hole Ooh, doing some research. Buckle here. in. Uh, so in the late 70s, John Helmer was the guitarist and vocalist for a ska punk band called the Piranhas. Very, very interesting band. I had never heard of them before. They're not bad for a late 70s, early 80s ska punk band. Their best known uh, hit was a, a top 10 hit in the UK called Tom Hark, 
which uh, which just for you, Matthew, is loaded with saxophone. Oh, just oh. absolutely plugged full of saxophone. Oh, my favorite. So after the Piranhas broke up in 1981, uh, he formed what was called a cabaret busking group called Poughkeepsie Snackenburger. <laughs> All one word, Poughkeepsie Snackenburger. Uh, it is just as weird as the name sounds. Uh, there are videos all over YouTube. If you go type in Poughkeepsie Snackenburger. The old Poughkeepsie Snackenburger. Uh, you'll find a whole bunch of very interesting videos. It's It sort of reminds me of a, a Dexie's Midnight Runners sort of a band. Um, they did a, a, a several commercials, but one of them was for Heineken called Bins. Ooh. And it is all these people running around smashing bin lids together. Uh, and that's really important because Poughkeepsie Snackenburger, which I'm just saying now because it's fun, they gave birth to another group called Yes No People, which uh, uh, were a percussion group, basically. They did mostly found percussion type of stuff. And after a performance on the ITV children's television show named A Beetle Called Derek, they were given a chance to de develop a full-length theater show that became Stomp. What? So Stomp was given birth to... By John Helmer and the Poughkeepsie, Poughkeepsie Snackenburger? Yeah. Weird. Oh, whoa, wait. I just looked it up. It's Pookie Snackenburger. Pookie Snackenburger? Am Pook I pronouncing it yeah, wrong? Yeah, it's Pookie Snackenburger. That's I, even better. Let's see how I wrote it down here. Did I write it? Oh, it is Pookie Snackenburger. I'm sorry. Pookie Snackenburger. I was reading my own writing as Poughkeepsie Snackenburger, <laughs> but it's Pookie Snackenburger. Pookie Snackenburger. I apologize, everybody. That's my, uh, that's my horrible English skills right there. But that's a, I fell down that little rabbit hole and I was like, wow. That was a fun little rabbit that hole. That is an interesting little side note. Pookie Snackenburger. Pookie Snackenburger. Turned into Stomp. Turned into Stomp. My guess is that he hasn't collected from any of the Stomp money. Huh? I don't think so. That I sucks. think that it was it was far enough steps away that he probably <laughs> six by degrees that point of Stomp? Was, exactly. So far away. Uh so are we ready to do this? Let's do it. That Let's was a good do one. the old uh, track yeah, by do track. The track by track. Gispacho. Mm, Gispacho. <laughs> the scene is set. Yes. It's very clear from the beginning that the primary focus of the record is celebrity. Mm -hmm. The trappings of celebrity. The running from and or to celebrity and the culmination of the effects of celebrity. Yes. Uh, it begins with these tape recorded statements bouncing around. By someone sounding like John Lennon mm -hmm. and a ton of other voices. Well, it actually begins with an announcement like the beginning of a boxing match. That is also true. I have uh, that later. And yeah, yeah, and I, I was very curious to find out more information about what boxing match that was and where it came from. Couldn't find it. Apparently, no. it sounds to me, and in a few places that I found online sort of concur with this, that that's a very general opening to boxing matches. Oh, ladies the, and gentlemen. Yeah, yeah. Almost the let's get ready to rumble copyrighted by that, whoever that guy is. So please don't sue us. Uh, <laughs> you didn't say it like him. So I, I think it's true. I think it. I'm okay. It's not quite that line, but it is very much a ladies and gentlemen. Let's, you know, we're here to box, blah, 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 blah type of a setup. Absolutely. But then it goes into that John Lennon line that you right. were talking about. And and this, his time's going to come later. Yes. Um, as I mentioned, uh, the date before it was released, released in 1995. Go ahead. I was going to say, did you know that's not actually John Lennon speaking yes, that line? Though? I did, because I said someone sounding like John Lennon. Oh, I'm sorry. I did say that. You did say that. It is from, as we'll find out later, it mm -hmm. is his words from an actual interview, mm -hmm. but it is not him speaking. It was released in 1995, having been written in late 1994, recorded in early 1995. So let's take a look at what was going on in pop culture around those times. Kurt Cobain killed himself in early 1994. 
In the summer of 1994, we witnessed a slow Bronco chase down the California freeway of O.J. Simpson, both celebrities who dealt with that status in completely different ways. Uh, Like I said earlier, celebrity trappings are what dominates this record. So apparently John Helmer, as you spoke of, uh, and Steve Hogarth were fans of the movie Raging Bull, which is about uh, boxer Jake LaMotta. That movie is very violent, shows LaMotta's domestic violence uh, very graphically, and you get that character study in this song. There's a line in the song that uh, goes, raging like a bull to an empty ring, do you think they'll forgive a hero anything? There's this compare and contrast with LaMotta and the OJ story that they both felt that they were so popular and untouchable that the public would never hold them accountable for their actions. And to some degree, they didn't. Yeah. Uh, The song ramps up and up, becoming uh, almost chaotic and frenetic, and then the bottom drops out, and the entire tenor of the song changes. Sounds like this. So uh, this time it starts to build back up, but starts uh, to include some pre-recorded pieces again. Uh, this time they are the actual tapes from the LAPD press conference and the voice of their spokesman, Dave Gascon, publicly declaring that Simpson was in the wind. The man is a fugitive. Um, it's a quite an amazing moment to live through. I think for a lot of people, the events of that day were very much like the JFK assassination in as much as where were you when Um, at the time of the Bronco chase, it was one of the hottest evenings of the early summer in Michigan that year. And Heather and I were at our restaurant making pizzas. Mm -hmm. So we had a TV in the kitchen um, and we were tuned in. The staff was tuned in. The customers were tuned in. Everything (laughs) shut down and it was riveting for all the wrong reasons. Right. He was a celebrity and we were essentially gawkers in this sick parade and i'll never forget it because you were you were just glued to it like business shut down for 45 minutes hour however long it took for him to get to the rockingham address and yeah i just you can't believe what's unfolding in front of your face so it's especially weird too to to reference back to it now and and nobody really nobody younger than that I was right at that age where i sort of understood what was going on but not really i mean i was only 11 when this happened right but it was very much like a, I remember it happening. I remember seeing it on TV, but it was not anything that I was interested in. Mm. And it's weird to reference back to it now because anybody that was born after that or was very young when that happened is like, yeah, whatever. OJ Simpson drove down the freeway and everybody watched. Like, But it really was, <laughs> it shut down the United States. Everybody yeah. was watching this. Everybody was paying attention to what was going on. They were watching it in the White House. Yeah. They were watching it everywhere. Yeah, it was nuts. It's uh, it, Yeah, it was surreal. Yeah. Like, best word for it, it was surreal. So, lyrically, it continues to drive home this point. Li- lines like, now the ring is just a band of gold. And the title line was the stain on your uh, Versace scarf. 
really just gazpacho. So uh, the song benefits greatly from this very busy bass line and the chime-like guitar parts. He's just got this chimey sound. to it. It's a fantastic song. Now you can do it. I was going to say, let's bring this back up a little bit to a more pleasant note here. Uh, do you know what gazpacho is? Yeah, it's a tomato soup. It's a cold soup uh, of blended vegetables. Uh, it originated in the southern regions of the Iberian Peninsula, mm. specifically Andalusia. Oh, uh, it's uh, widely eaten in the summer months in Spain and Portugal uh, because it's cold, obviously, and it's very hot there. So it kind of cools you down. Uh, and in Andalusia, most gazpacho recipes include stale bread, tomato, cucumbers, onion, chili peppers, garlic, olive oil, wine, wine vinegar, water and salt. Uh, the northern recipes often include cumin and or pimenton, which is a smoked type of paprika. Sounds delicious. That sounds really good. I gotta tell you, when I was looking at uh, looking up information about gazpacho to to write that little thing, all the pictures made it look really good. Mm. (laughs) It's probably really good. Made me very hungry. Well, we're gonna use this opportunity to get uh, Kyle some gazpacho, and we're gonna take a break right now. Kyle, yes. Have you ever uh, felt like you wanted to try something new? Like, oh boy. like cooking or basket weaving. Yes. But you didn't know where to start. Mm, that's, like I a, do usually have trouble starting. Like you needed a roadmap or a guide. Yeah. A lot of people feel like that about jazz music. Ah. So, you know, they don't know where to start. It seems too complex. Do I start with a fusion or big band or the legends? I, I know I feel like that personally. It is a very deep and, and rich subject with a, a lot of places you could start. All right. So, well... We here at Audio Judo have something mm-hmm. to fix all that. And with the help of our guest host and jazz spirit guide, Chris, we're going to help uh, try and help you navigate the treacherous waters of listening to jazz. Uh, we will be premiering a new spinoff podcast series called Audio Judo Does Jazz in late April. It's, mm-hmm. it's going to be fun, interesting. I'm looking forward to it. We're also recording that bad boy exclusively with the new podcaster kit from AKG. Yes. Chris doesn't have any experience in podcasting, so we wanted to make it as easy as possible for the person who doesn't have studio equipment or editing headphones or anything like that. So this podcaster's kit is perfect. He gets a cool mic, set of headphones, software, bingo, blango, he's podcast. Yeah. All that means is more competition for us, so we have to bring our A-game because everyone is going to be podcasting soon. The only thing I didn't like about it is uh, since Chris is using it, I can't steal it. No, you can't steal That's it. unfortunate. So, uh... Well, it's a shame we had to send it to Chris. Yeah. He's, he's going to make the most of it. Yeah. Like I said, look for that series in late April. Yes. Because we are super jazzed about it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Dad wordplay. Cannibal Surf, babe? Yeah. Hey, the Beach Boys are here. Right? Oh, no, wait. It's uh, Simon and Garfunkel doing Mrs. Robinson. <laughs> no, wait. It's a different song altogether. It's completely different. Completely different. Hogarth uh, continues his uh, assault, celebrity assault, with the Beast Boy, uh, Beastie Boys? Beach Boys pastiche. The Beachy Beastie Boys. And an ode to late night horror movies as well. Uh, if there was a song on this record that I could do with that, it would be this one. Really? Because this was one of my favorites from this record. Cannot stand. Oh, it's an interesting it's, song. It's fun. No, that's good. That we disagree. It's right? got some very unique parts to it. Um, because it is so obviously a spoof, though, it rings yeah. hollow for me with the rest of the record. One thing I will talk about in this song is how well it is mixed. Mm. Uh, not just this song, but the whole record. Yes. So after they recorded their previous album, Brave, it didn't perform uh, commercially uh, nearly as the as well as the label wanted. And with the 15-month uh, gestation period for no money, I'm sure they weren't ready to wait and pay for that long a time again. 
Uh, so they wanted an album now, and they needed someone to facilitate that in the studio. So the producer who had done the last record was tasked with keeping them on schedule as opposed to the last one where they were free to do what the hell they wanted. Uh, that producer was Dave Megan. Uh, Dave Megan trained under the great Trevor Horn, was an engineer on YouTube, The Joshua Tree, and Rattle and Hum. Uh, he would become Marillion's de facto sixth member as he would remain their producer for the next decade. Uh, he kept them on schedule, shortening the waiting period from 15 months to six. And his hand can be heard throughout as the guitar is very clean and pushed forward in the mix, like this. And the sun came up over the mountain And the waves rolled in across the bay And the fabulous lightning-colored birds Blew up out of the forest, she said We're all heaven's beautiful children Living together and lives Right down my dear, you're going to enjoy this I'm so glad that you picked that clip. Why is that? I had something to say about that. That Please line, uh, the sun came up over the mountain and the waves rolled across the bay. The way that that's read, I'm, I'm about 99% sure that it is a reference to the British television, children's television show, Blue Peter. Uh, which is, uh, it's been on the air since 1958 continuously. It's the longest running children's show in history. But um, they will frequently tell stories and and talk about real world uh, events and things. But they're often, especially in the older episodes, they're presented in that sort of a voice. And the, the words are read in that style where they're like, and the person did this thing and this thing happened. And then they went on to this. And, Interesting. Uh, but I'm pretty sure the second I heard that, I was like, oh, that's from Blue Peter. It's got to be. But it's not directly but I think that it's done in that style. Hmm. That's that's interesting. I picked that clip specifically because those words mm -hmm. uh, surface on the next song. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. The opening part of the song is a young woman speaking French over an oddly truncated keyboard part. Uh, the French being spoken is roughly the line that I just referenced at the end of the last song. So what he just played and what he just said in English, she is saying yes. in French. So it sounds different in French to be sure. Uh, yes. I believe the speaker is uh, Hannah Stobart, as she is the only other voice listed for this song. She was a young college student that would eventually sing lead in Steve Rothery's side project called The Wishing Tree that you mentioned earlier. This song would be the only, quote, hit on this record where it, it peaked at number 29 on the UK singles chart. Hmm. Um, we have to take a second to see where we are, though. So this is 1995 again, just a few short months before the new Oasis album, mm -hmm. What's the Story, Morning Glory, would be released. Mm. Uh, this was right at the height of Britpop, and this record was not in step with that sound at all. That is 100% true. Uh, in fact, this song is about as close as the band would get to that sound, and it's really not that close, just slightly reminiscent of it. It's a beautiful song. See what I did there? Aha! Uh, about recognizing the beauty in every person. Several years before Christina Aguilera would do it and win a treasure chest full of awards. <laughs> uh, this is essentially the same thing, uh, but it's a prog rock group doing it. So, uh, <laughs> right? So it stands out to me for the vocal work on it. It is some of the very strongest in the Marillion catalog, like this. <laughs> 
swear to God, I have heard this as part of a movie soundtrack. You probably have. And I could not find any direct reference to it. Maybe you have. But uh, yeah, I, I swear <laughs> that it's in some movie somewhere. But if anybody out there knows, drop us a line and let us know. Probably some English movie. Right. It could be. Uh, I'd like th- to point out. Oh, go ahead. Oh, was, no, you go. Oh, I would say this is uh, one of only two tracks on here not co-written by John Helmer. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, in keeping with the theme of the album, like you were kind of saying, uh, it's about how people become famous simply because they're beautiful, uh, and then they get thrown out uh, and forgotten because they start to grow old. Obviously, the idea of the leaves turning brown, red, and then brown, yep. and then falling off the tree, direct reference to that. I really liked the line, uh, come on, sign your name. Uh, because I think that it could either be a reference to signing a contract, like when you become famous, or signing an autograph when you've been famous and you don't want to do it anymore. And people, oh, will you sign my thing? Definitely. I like that. And uh, Randy made a, a point about um, Ian Mosley's uh, snare drum sound, mm-hmm. where I just really noticed how much that cracks in that song, too. It is tightly wound. <laughs> it, it, it is a, it's a pretty tight snare. Look out, he's going to blow ahead. <laughs> oh! Right back in his face. Uh, what he, is he lost an eye to this song? Well, it was worth it. Uh, <laughs> what has been evident for the last three albums after Fish's departure is the difference between H and Fish as singers. Um, it has always been a point of argument or contention for fans of the band about who is better, and it is simply not an argument. Uh, they are essentially two different bands with completely different sounds because of what the singer brings to the table. Fish is very much a talky singer. He speaks through verses, has some melody, but kind of similar to each other, the melodies. Uh, he can sound angry, defiant even, and therefore the music with him was much darker. Mm-hmm. Also, lyrically, they both do character studies, uh, but Fish always centered on addiction and emotional issues, and they all seem to be some degree uh, semi-autobiographical. H, on the other hand, is much more of a musical singer, much more melody-based, and there isn't as much anger in his voice, if any. There is more desperation and pleading in his voice, and therefore the music can take on that personality. Uh, It can be sweet and tender, so sometimes the music inhabits that sound. Like this song, it's pretty and out of step with a lot of older Marillion songs, but it's fantastic. So what I did, I have a clip here that is a song from the previously mentioned classic album, Misplaced Childhood. It was their only charting single in the States. It is called Kaylee. The clips are from two separate live performances of the same song. The first is of Fish performing it with Marillion, and the second is of Hogarth oh, interesting. performing it with Marillion. And it sounds like this.
noticeable, though, the difference between those two voices. Uh, there's a genuine uniqueness to both of the voices, but there is so much more defiance, so much more vitriol in Fish's voice. Yeah. Um, granted, it's his song, but still, still in the delivery. So uh, I got a question for you. Yeah. So uh, you said that Steve Hogarth, uh, fans call him H. Yes. Is it British or American H? Because mm. uh, American is H and British is H. Oh, I don't know. That's a good question. Uh, I always refer to them as uh, Fonzie and Cow. H or <laughs> H. <laughs> that's, a, that's an excellent question, and I'm not sure. One of his solo albums is just titled H. Oh, or H. H. Could be H. Uh, that's good. That that I'd, requires I'd be, more research. Right? I'd be curious to know how he he, he pronounces it and how most fans pronounce it. But, uh, yeah, you're not going to remember what that means. Oh, yeah. Did you write down Fonzie Cow? Equal H. Fonzie Cow. I'm going to write down Fonzie Cow. Henry Winkler. Uh, moo, moo, moo. Moo, moo. Okay. Referring to my uh, question from the beginning of this. Almost. Are you afraid of sunrise, Matthew? Yes. You I, are afraid of the mornings. I'm afraid of the morning. Oh, terrified of them. I hate the mornings. That's fair. Uh, this is the point of the album and point of their careers where Marillion becomes the new Marillion to me. Most bands will top load an album, put all the best songs towards the front of it. And if some of the great, if some of the greatest songs are near the end, a lot of people might not even listen that far. So why bother? But for me, the three weakest songs on the record are the first three. The album starts for me, hmm. the album starts here. And this is Afraid of Sunrise. So there's a lyric right towards the beginning of this song that says, uh, the great white way. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with that uh, phrase? You're referring to Broadway? Well, it actually has a lot of different meanings. Yeah, uh, no. Uh, so uh, first one is uh, a movie. It's a movie from 1924, a silent film. It's a comedy centered on the sport of boxing. Wow, that makes sense. a reference back to the beginning, directed by E. Mason Hopper. Uh, it was made with the cooperation of the New York City Fire Department, interestingly enough. That's weird. Uh, and the film stars Oscar Shaw and Anita Stewart. Uh, it's a lost film. So nobody has a copy of it anymore. It's completely gone. Oh. Uh, however, it was remade 12 years later and titled Cain and Mabel uh, with Marion Davis and Clark Gable. Mm. The general term, Great White Way, refers to any street that is well lit uh, at night and is centered around public amusements and theaters. Mm -hmm. However, more specifically, the term The Great White Way, it originated as a description of a section of Broadway in Midtown Manhattan, mm -hmm. specifically the theater district between 42nd and 53rd Streets in the Times Square area. Right. Uh, in 1880, a stretch of Broadway between Union Square and Madison Square was illuminated by brush arc lamps, making it the first among, I'm sorry, making it among the first electrically lighted streets in the United States. By the 1890s, the portion from 23rd Street to 34th Street was so brightly illuminated by electrical advertising signs that people began calling it the Great White Way. Uh, when the theater district moved uptown, the name transferred with them to Times Square. Uh, the phrase, the Great White Way, has actually been attributed to Shep Friedman. 
columnist for the New York Morning Telegraph, uh, who in 1901 uh, lifted the term from the title of a book about the Arctic by a man named Albert Payne. Uh, the headline, Found on the Great White Way, appeared in the February 3rd, 1902 edition of the New York Evening Telegram, talking about the theater district. Interesting. So lots of tie-ins there. There are lots of tie-ins, and there are also, like, I've heard it suggested that someone, that it, he was referring to, like, the Salt Lake Valley, like yes, the flats. I have heard that as well. Um, and I, I think that it could be, I think it definitely refers to both, because to me, this song was about somebody fleeing the publicity of New York and that whole scene yeah. to head to the desert. Yeah, this and song. And maybe the East, or the, I'm sorry, the West Coast. This song's very much set and rooted in the Southwestern United States. Yeah. And the, the imagery that Hogarth uses in his lyrics is outstanding. He's Nevada's burning, Phoenix, Phoenix rising. rising. Day glow Jesus on the dash, scorch marks on the road ahead. That's just, it's amazing visuals. And it's a great example of H's uh, esoteric kind of enigmatic lyrics, which are much different than Fish's. Fish yeah. would would speak, uh, he would use words that, that I had to look up very often as a kid, you know, <laughs> at 12 incantations and Harlequin and stuff like that were not words in my vocabulary. So I did have to look them up, but he used them in a, in a sensical kind of understandable way within context. And H very much is, it's somewhat, sometimes they're hard to discern what he's talking about. I don't have too much about this song uh, because the next few have so much to say about them. Yeah. Out of this world? Yes. Are you out of this world? I now? might be out of this world if I have a couple more beers. Uh, <laughs> I like this song a lot and I like it even more now that I know what it's about and what happened because of this. Song. Yes. This is a great story. Uh, I think I told everybody to buckle in before. If you took that seatbelt off, put, put it, it right the fuck back on, because this is a great story. Right. So first of all, talk about uh, it was one of the first examples of Steve Rothery's underwater kind of guitar sound. Mm -hmm. He used it uh, earlier on Misplaced Childhood here and there, but he starts to really use it on this record and going forward uses it a lot. It sounds like the amp is underwater and has these wave elements to it. And there's excellent reasons for that. So this song... Yeah. Is about Donald Malcolm Campbell. Uh, Campbell was a thrill seeker and at one point the world record holder for land speed, set in 1964, and water speed in 1955, and again in 1964. In 1965, he lost the world record and became obsessed with regaining it. Uh, in 1967, against the advice of his racing team, he set out on his jet-powered boat called the Bluebird 2 to the Coniston Lake in the Cumbrian Lake District of England. Uh, he crashed and perished during the attempt, and his body and the wreck were not recovered. H had heard of the event, did some research, and set out to write a song about it. Fast forward four years later, a diver named Bill Smith, not the Bill Smith who designed the cover of the record, a completely different Bill Smith, heard the song and it changed his life, and the Bluebird 2 became his obsession. Using sonar and diving repeatedly in the murky waters, he was able to find the boat in 2001 and applied for permission to raise it. He was given permission by Donald Campbell's daughter. Present at the raising of it were Steve Rothery and Steve Hogarth, with Rothery serving as the official photographer of the event. In a piece for the band's website, H talks of the blue paint of the boat still visible after 34 years underwater and the bubble of the, com the cockpit still intact, uh, and there was fear that his body was still inside. It wasn't. Also present was his wife, who had been present when he was killed. However, in this song, it was clear that they were estranged, and H would convey the story of how he met her later that evening after the raising, and she would thank him for bringing attention to the story. In the song, there are these tape-recorded 
these tape recordings that play towards the middle section, and those are the actual cockpit recordings. The words, as related by a BBC reporter, were saved for posterity. They were, quote, The water's dark green, and I can't see a bloody thing. Hello. The bow is up. I'm going. I'm on my back. I'm gone. That's kind of creepy. Right? It's an extremely emotional song. Right? It uh, is. He's a fascinating dude, Donald Campbell. He he broke eight absolute world speed records on water and land in the 1950s and 60s, and he remains the only person to set both world land and water speed records in the same year, which was 1964. He set a water speed world. Excuse me. He set a water world speed record on November 16th, 1955, of 216.20 miles per hour, right here, Lake Mead, Nevada. And it directly led to him being awarded the CBE, which is the most excellent order of the British Empire in January 1957, which is generally given to uh, people who make uh, significant contributions to society in things like science, mathematics, uh, uh, anything intellectual, basically arts, things like that, which that, I think that's super cool. There are tons of fascinating little details yeah. in this story. Okay, and it, go ahead. the Wikipedia page on it is incredibly detailed. And the, uh, the that has the full transcript of both his runs that day. Yeah. Uh, the one going one direction and then he flipped around and went back without refueling. And people said he might that might have been something to do with it. The weight. Yeah. yeah. Um, they did find his body, thankfully, during that same time. I don't remember if you said that or not. Uh, they no. did. They were able to recover his body and give him a, a proper burial. However, uh, they have still not found his head. Oh. <laughs> Which is a sad detail. But I thought a fascinating detail that they were able to recover the body, but not the skull. Oy. They ha they have his helmet because they found that floating after the crash and they found the body, um, but not the head. Mm. Gruesome detail. And I apologize if that. So maybe they were out, worried that the head would still be in the cockpit. That's a possibility. I think they found the body several months after they found the boat. OK. Because they, they raised like two thirds of the boat to the surface. Um, and there were pieces missing off of it. Uh, and they were, I know in the story that I read, they said they were worried about finding the body in the boat and they were trying to keep people back away from it. Right. And there were people crowding around when they brought it ashore and they didn't want to open it and they had to get everybody out of the area and then they open it and they didn't find anything inside. Right. Uh, and then they kept diving and they found other smaller pieces of the boat. Um, I shouldn't call it a boat. The, this purpose built machine. Yes. Uh, they found other pieces of the bluebird. Uh, and they, they brought them up to the surface and, uh, uh eventually they found his body. Hmm. Apparently his jumpsuit, his jumpsuit, because it was made from those like polyester plastics of the sixties yeah. was still like fully intact. And that's how they identified it underwater. Cause they could see the blue from the, the jumpsuit and they thought maybe it was part of the boat. Hmm. And then they found that it was the body. Headless body. Yeah. Yeesh. Uh, it's an extremely emotional song. Uh, but what sets it apart uh, musically, what ramps up the drama and tension is Steve Rothery's guitar work. So Steve Rothery is one of my favorite guitars, much like Steve Hackett and David Gilmore. And what I love about this trio of guitarists is how they choose to solo. They all have bags of tricks and effects and flanges and echoes and delays. But what sets them apart for me is the solo. Shredders and the Van Halens of the world through the 80s began soloing at the very top of the neck, the highest pitches, the squealing and the fast finger work. And what I love about these guys, Rothery in particular, is he usually solos in the middle of the neck. And what that allows him to do is go anywhere melodically. He can go up and higher or down and lower, or he can ho hover in the middle of the register and gives the solo a life and a breath. And what comes next 
is almost invariably a surprise. And here is the solo from this song. It is the centerpiece of this record and questions the obsession that Campbell had and how much it would eventually cost him his life. Yeah. Uh, the line, you know, what the hell do we want only to go where no one has gone? You know, he's questioning those very motives that drive someone past pursuit and into obsession. And it's such a strong, strong song. It's just, it's just a wonderful song. I definitely like that it's a different type of celebrity, too. This is not a celebrity. This isn't necessarily, I don't know if I would consider him an athlete. Um, I don't know that I would necessarily consider him, you know, a celebrity, a movie star or that type of a celebrity. Right. He's somebody who was setting world records and became famous for that type of, of, of drive and determination. And I think that that's, and kept pushing himself to set more records. I think that's cool because that's a type of celebrity that is very niche, I guess is a good way to put it. Niche. Especially uh, somebody like this from quite a while ago, even when this album was recorded, you know, I mean, it was 30 years ago. So 30 mm -hmm. years previous to when the album was recorded and right. now it's 56 years ago, 57 years ago. Sorry, I went the wrong way. 53 years ago. It's a long time. It's a long time ago. So you were, well, you asked if I was afraid of sunlight. Yes. Oh, afraid of sunrise. Yes, I did ask if you're afraid of sunrise. But are you afraid of sunlight? I am terrified of sunlight. The song obviously reminiscent of Afraid of Sunrise. There you go. Obviously. Continues mm -hmm. the Southwest imagery and it's more about the self destructive behavior of celebrities. Allegedly, this song is about James Dean, but that's hard to discern. Music for this song is so strong and really encapsulates the new sound of the band going forward. There's a nature to their sound that fundamentally changed when H entered the band. The way he composes lyrics, the way he sings with so much emotion other than anger, it gave the songs air. There were spaces in the songs that never used to be there with Fish, and the compositional elements changed. Instead of needing to fill every bit of the wax with music, they let songs build and ebb and flow and change. And part of that was the fact that this would be the last record that they would really answer to a label mm -hmm. and give them their freedom. But much of it was what uh, H brought to the table. That sounds like this. Come to haunt you by 
first verse uh, talks about the thrill seeker celebrities, mm-hmm. which is probably where they got the James, James Dean thing. The second is more of the emotional trauma and pain they deal with during celebrity. And the last one is the addicted celebrity who always feels like they're in control no matter what. He uses a great phrase. Oh, he uses a bunch of great phrases in the verse. Spirit rack abuses. That's a good one. Spirit rack is obviously the shelf behind a bar. A spirit rack. I love that. I'd never heard that term before. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I, I'd never heard that term before either. Yeah, that's it, it's a rack of, I mean, a shelf of spirits. Yeah. Spirit, that, I love that line. The, the next line is uh, Byzantine excuses. Mm. Uh, Byzantine is refer, uh, referencing the Byzantine Empire, which was renowned for its complicated politics. Mm-hmm. The last is memory pricks your thumbs. That line is actually from Macbeth, which means a sense of foreboding. It is from the very uh, famous section of this. Double, double, toil and trouble, fire burning cauldron bubble. By the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. Open locks, whoever knocks. It's mm, so great. Yeah. Like, you, like, who would have thought Shakespeare was a good writer? <laughs> I didn't think that. I had no idea. I love when this stuff is in music and it's just buried for you to like <laughs> somehow un- unearth it like years later. Like, right? oh, that's Macbeth? Yeah, oh, shit. I even know that. Uh, it's almost like it's beyond you. <gasps> That's the name of the next song. It is. This one's really interesting. It doesn't sound like anything else on this album. It, uh, uh, it, was, uh, it was mixed in mono, uh, which is an interesting choice. And it sounds, uh, a lot of people have compared it to uh, Phil Spector's Wall of Sound recording effect. It definitely sounds, everything else on this has a lot of dynamic range. Yep. This sounds real flat, but it's good. I think it fits with this song really well. I think that was the point, like... Uh, you have to depend uh, on a lot of Marillion records. You have to depend on what the writers said in interviews to determine mm-hmm. what they're talking about. Um, allegedly, the song is about Phil Spector. Uh, and the only real musical hint you get is to back that up is that the song is mixed in mono. Mm-hmm. The lyrics could relate to Phil Spector in an obtuse kind of angular way. Uh, he's talking about being obsessed with a woman and not being able to get her out of his head so much that so much so that he can't really stand himself because it's consuming him from the inside. This song predates the murder trial for Spectre by several years. Yeah. And while he was a known addict and domestic abuser for years, there's very little in the song that really tells me that it's about him. Yeah. But the mix is all Spectre and the music the musical moments on it are spectacular. Yeah. Like this one. I had read that uh, several people thought this referred to Phil Spector as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I agree with you, though. I don't. I think it's more generic than that. I think this is a lot more about a couple, a celebrity couple, that has to stay together to maintain their celebrity, because mm. if they break up, they're both going to lose it. Yeah. And so they sort of, you know, he's obsessed with her, and she doesn't want anything to do with him, but if they break up, they both lose everything. And that, uh, the lyrics that I wrote down, uh, and the feeling comes in waves, A hole in my body aching like a heart dying, a soul crying, exhausted and insecure, 
took all you have and I still want more. So I reach out to hold you, but all I do is hurt you. That's a, yeah. The way he sings that line, a hole in my body aching is painful to listen to. Yeah. And you could feel him through the song. And that's, that's just where the difference is, where these two singers, where they're both, they're both so gifted, Fish and, and Steve Hogarth, but so different in the same band. And it's always bothered me that that Marillion fans factioned up yeah. to be like, I only like Fish era Marillion. I'm like, you're really giving it a you're really giving it a solid go here? Because <laughs> you could just pretend like it's another band. If you pretended like another it was another band and not Marillion, would you like it? Because I think you would. Yeah. So Huh. Uh King. King. Last track on this album. Uh the album begins the way it began. Well, with some sound bites from it, a fake John Lennon. It begin the album begins the way it began. Yeah. Oh, ends. Oh, yeah. did I say begins? You did. Oh, I even typed that. Oh my god. <laughs> hey, take that out, Randy. And that one's for the outtakes. I gotta say that again. Hey, the album ends the way it began. Ah. With some sound bites from a fake John Lennon and Elvis layered over top of one another. So that might not be a fake John Lennon in this case. Oh, it's fake. Well, so hold on a minute. So in the first song, let me go back my notes here. All right. In the first song, it is for sure a fake John Lennon, because that quote is from... Next page of my notes. Sorry about that. Bernard Hill, uh, the actor from the movie John Lennon, A Journey in Life. And the quote was directly taken in that case from a 1980 Playboy interview that John Lennon had done. This quote, however, from King is actually from a Rolling Stone interview that John Lennon did three days before he was shot with Jonathan Cott, who at the time was the editor of Rolling Stone. I am not 100% positive if the recording is John Lennon or somebody else. Now, my feeling is that it is. What makes me think that it is, is the cover of the Rolling Stone, uh, I think it was 25 years after this, so it would have been like 2005 or 2006 when they released it, was... John Lennon's final interview recordings, something, 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 something about the tapes. I forget exactly what the what the line was, but the the quote from the Rolling Stone interview is the full quote is, I'm not claiming divinity. I've never claimed purity of soul. I've never claimed to have the answers to life. I only put out songs and answer questions as honestly as I can, but only as honestly as I can. No more, no less. I cannot live up to other people's expectations of me because they're illusionary. I cannot be a punk in Hamburg and Liverpool because I'm older now. I see the world through different eyes now, but I still believe in peace, love, and understanding. As Elvis Costello said, what's so fucking funny about peace, love, and understanding? It's it's fashionable to be a go-getter and slash thy... Excuse me. It's fashionable to be a go-getter and slash thy neighbor with a cross, but we're not one of the... one. Jesus. We're not one to follow the fashion. I can't read my own... (laughs) I made it big. I, uh, sorry about that. But it is big. I could see it from right? here. If those ta- if they are actually they taped this interview because it was a nine hour long interview. So my assumption is that it was taped so that he could go back and make notes off yeah. of it. I just don't see them getting Th- their hands on that it. That to me is the big thing is how would they have gotten their hands on it 15 years later? Yeah. Now, supposedly I had read as well that sections of these tapes were released underground and they were sort of passed around for a while. In New York City. Hmm. 
Now, maybe they got a hold of one of those or somebody they know got it a hold just of one doesn't of those. See, it doesn't feel like exactly. that, like Marillion to not credit that. Right. And it, you would think that it would be something that was credited because like you were saying earlier, they have detailed credits on absolutely everything, which right. is fantastic. And I think more bands need to do that. But I did want to definitely bring it up that that is for sure the interview where the quote came from. Now, whether the recording of it is an actor pretending right. to be John Lennon or John Lennon himself. So the words that they used in the clip, whether it's John Lennon or not, mm -hmm. are, uh, quote, because of what they saw, they were tortured by society for trying to express what they what they were. I saw loneliness, only dead people in books, Lewis Carroll, certain paintings. Surrealism had a great effect on me because then I realized that my imagery and my mind wasn't insanity, that if it was insane, I belong in an exclusive club that sees the world in those terms. Surrealism to me is reality. Psychic vision, to me, is reality. Even as a child, when I looked at myself in the mirror when I was 12 or 13, I used to literally trance out into alpha. I didn't know what it was called then. I found out years later there is a name for those conditions. I would find myself seeing hallucinatory images of my face changing and becoming cosmic and complete. Hmm. So see, what about the line, I cannot live up to other people's expectations for me because they're illusionary? No, I believe it. I believe it's from there. That's the next line, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was like, I didn't pull this out of nowhere, did I? No, no, but no. But I wonder if they mashed it together. That's possible. Like, I wonder if they mashed quotes together to make it, because none of the quote, uh, that, uh, the Lewis Carroll stuff, I believe, was earlier in this same Rolling Stone interview, if I remember correctly. Because I read both the Rolling Stone interview and the Playboy interview that he did, both in 1980, I believe. Yeah, right before he, yeah, yeah. Right before he was shot. And so it begins, though, one of the most chaotic musical pieces in the entire mm. Marillion catalog. Um it is at times quiet and still, other times explosive and a bit much like this section here. If you haven't figured it out yet, uh, this song is all about famous celebrities dying. Yes, succumbing to celebrity, the inability to cope. He he wrote this song uh, almost implicitly about Kurt Cobain. Yeah, there's a few references to Elvis in the beginning, yeah, but and yeah. obviously the John Lennon quote. But it's definitely about Kurt Cobain, and it sounds a lot like a Nirvana song. It noisy. Yeah, yeah. This is from an interview shortly after the album's release with Steve Hogarth, and he said. Uh, I think this song is mostly inspired by Kurt Cobain's suicide notes. I have never met him, but I felt very close to him in some ways. The last ever Nirvana gig was at Munich's Terminal 1. From there, the band traveled to Rome and stayed at the Cavaliere Hilton, one of my favorite hotels. Cobain took an uh, overdose in his hotel room, and I could, just, I could just about imagine him there. I could see the hotel room, the bathroom, the furniture. They then flew Cobain back to America, where, as you know, he shot himself. Marillion was the first band to go on stage at Terminal 1 after Nirvana. I was the first to take center stage, and it was a very weird sensation. There I was, dressed as a bloody priest, walking up to the center of the stage, and it was as if, as if I was a, following a ghost, a most peculiar, peculiar sensation. That's very much how Cobain felt, though. 
Uh, he couldn't deal with the pressure, the adulation, yeah. uh, and never felt as if he deserved it or even wanted it. Uh, a line in the song is, you are sick to your stomach. Uh, Cobain suffered from horrible stomach issues that he soothed with heroin. Uh, he was a mess, and he was doing all that he could to get out of the situation, and ultimately the way he chose to get out of it was the final way out. It's a powerful song that closes a powerful, well-constructed record. Uh, re I, go ahead. I would say the ending to this song, too. So abrupt. Oh, Just, just, just like death. Yep, I just mean, it just ends. ends. Yeah, it's a... Uh, it's a record that reshaped Marillion and their sound and, and changed their trajectory. Uh, what did, uh, what did, what, like, ultimately, what did you think about it, Kyle? I, I liked you, it. Yeah. I actually liked it as a whole album. Like I said, this is really the first time I've, I've listened to Marillion a little bit before on your advice, but I've never really sat down and listened to an album from beginning to end. Um, this was the first. But I made the mistake the first couple of times of listening to it in the car or when I was out for a walk one night. And it, I couldn't give it my full attention. Sure. And so I quite literally, I was driving to work listening to it and I got to work and I was like, wait, what did I just listen to? Like, I couldn't remember any of it just because it's not an album that takes easily to being listened to passively. No. You have to actively listen to this album. If you are going to go listen to it, and I encourage everybody to listen to it and make up their own minds about it, find an hour, sit down, put on a good set of headphones or have some nice speakers and listen to it. Because if you are trying to listen to it while you're doing dishes or, or you know, playing with the kids or whatever, you're not going to get it. It's not going to sink in at all. No, it just goes past. And yeah. it's one of those bands that, like, you really, uh, you have to invest time in, especially if you're getting into it now. Like, I know all of these albums so well that I can casually do something and pick oh, something yeah. up and I'm just singing along because I, I know these records so well. But but you, you do have to invest some time because they're... They're trying to say a lot. Yes. They're, they're trying to say many things. And I, I debated about going into the rest of the Marillion story, like the birth of crowdfunding and all yeah. that stuff. But I decided to leave that for another podcast. I just didn't feel like it fits in with this. Uh, so when Marillion comes around again, I'll do it then, cool. uh, you know, whenever that I, happens to be. Just out of curiosity, do you think that your next Marillion album that you'll pick to do later than this one or previous to this one? Um, I know that's a difficult question to answer, but I want it to be earlier, but it will be later. Okay. Because, because I want to speak about the cottage industry that Marillion is now and the crowdfunding and everything they've done to reshape how music is accessible. It is, I, it is a great success story. Right. I, I want to speak about that. I would love to sit and talk about misplaced childhood for the next three hours <laughs> and I could do that without notes. But I think it's going to be a more recent album that at least can bring in some of the crowdfunding cool. uh, story. So um, so we are so glad that you decided to join us today. Yes. Uh, we're glad you're listening. If you'd like to hear more from us, please go to our Patreon site at patreon.com forward slash audio judo and sign up. Go yeah, ahead. We just changed it. Uh, a little bit of change up on the old uh, Patreon site. Uh, so we have eliminated one of our tiers and we now have two tiers. The front row seats tier is probably the one that most people would be interested in signing up for. Uh, with the front row seats, you get two-day early access to all of our episodes, uh, a shout-out on a future episode as a loyal producer, bonus mini-episodes called Judo Chops, 
and occasional bonus content, such as unedited interviews, uh, some behind-the-scenes videos that Matthew has been working on, uh, and also some tiny tidbits that get cut out of episodes, uh, mostly due to our own flatulence. <laughs> uh, the step up from that, and it is a little bit... Oh, that is... Uh, I don't know if I said that. It's $5 a month. <laughs> Uh, the step up from that is the backstage pass. Uh, it is $20 a month. You get everything in the front row seats for that, as well as a very special personalized gift, and also uh, a chance to co-host an episode of Audio Judo about an, an album that you pick. Oh, hell yeah. So uh, you want to pick something horrible. You want to pick Spice World. Matthew and I will listen to Spice World and uh, talk to you about I, it. I will unfortunately uh, have to listen to it several times to really get a right? really get a taste of it. Somebody, somebody did point out the other day a, a good thought uh if you are an aspiring band who has just released an album you could sign up for this and uh if you want to pay us uh the full year you have to pay for that for a year in order to get a chance right. to host for, with for us. the low low price of 240 dollars yeah. if you want to pay we'll us promote the, the hell out of your record up front, we will review your album we will be honest about it but we will review your album oh yeah uh, we're, we're gonna be we're not critics that's true but we're going to be critical yeah that's a good way like to put i think it. like i don't want to I'm not a critic. I'm not going to be the asshole that's sitting there going, well, you know, it's uh, if they only had done this, I would recommend it, but I can't <laughs> recommend it. No, I'm going to tell you why I like it or not like it, but then I'm going to encourage you to make your own decision about why you like it or like it or don't like it. Yeah, there you like go. it or don't like it. So uh, also get in touch with us. We love hearing from fans. We now have fans all over the world. All over the world. And we, we'd love to hear from all of you. Saw Tunisia popped up today. Whoa. I don't even know where that is. That's pretty cool. That's where they filmed part of Star Wars. I do know where that is. There Never mind. Uh, <laughs> we, have, we have episodes coming up about Stone Temple Pilots, uh, Depeche Mode, Metallica. Yeah. And a special episode about bands that only made one album. Yeah. Uh, uh, so that'll be fun. Like I was saying, though, get in touch. Uh, Facebook.com forward slash audio judo. Twitter is at Audio Judo. Instagram is at Audio underscore Judo uh, or good old email. That's probably the quickest way to get in touch with us. Info at AudioJudo.com. Yeah, we check that very regularly. Yes, we do. And if you haven't listened yet, check out Audio Judo Does Jazz, wherever podcasts are podcast. Uh, other than that, we will see you in two weeks. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.